0: Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Ozan Ozafshi, author of the book Dangerous Gifts, Imperialism, Security, and Civil Wars in the Levant, 1798, to 1864, published by Oxford University Press, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Ozan. Hi. Hi, Kirk. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry for not being able to pronounce your name properly. I tried my best. <laughs> no problem. You did really well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we like to start off our interviews by having the authors tell us a bit more about themselves. So can you please let our audience know a little bit of the background to yourself, and particularly in relation to the subject of this book?
2: Yes, sure. I'm originally from Turkey, now living in Utrecht in the Netherlands and working uh, as an assistant professor of trans-imperial history at Utrecht University. I completed my postgraduate studies in history and uh, Middle Eastern studies at uh, Manchester University in the United Kingdom. Since my early work, I've been interested in Euro-Middle Eastern entangled histories, especially in relation to the transfer of ideas, economic and financial relations, and foreign interventionism, which is the subject of my new book.
0: Right. Okay. Um, you know that just even the um, the the department name is interesting: trans-imperial history. Um, why, the, what is meant by uh, trans-imperial history? Yeah, I think it's not
2: the name of the department. It is uh, my specialization. Okay. And by trans-imperial history, what I refer to is the uh, mobilization of resources, not only across, but also in between and beyond imperial borders. And uh, this is a new sub-discipline that is emerging in the field of history, And I've been working on this, uh, looking at how major and smaller empires in the late 18th and 19th century came to interact with each other, not only within the confines of competition, but new forms of collaboration and transmission of, uh, as I said, resources, uh, of of the capital and ideas and, and of course, uh, know-how.
0: Right, and and what what I find interesting about this, and I, I'd like to hear a perspective. I mean, maybe jumping the gun a bit, but still, it might. It might since we've touched the topic, maybe I, I could continue. Which is, you know, um, the Ottoman Empire certainly is, um, uh, you know, imperial. So, uh, and and I find myself being uh, from you know the third world. Uh, I I. I I have, in my own work, I have very much been uh, critical of the kind of victim victimhood uh, um, sort of narrative and framework uh, to the discussion of of history in general, and uh, and imperial history, and uh, you know so so the Ottoman Empire, uh, I. I, I don't know if if uh, you include that as part of the imperialisms uh, that you know that uh, may be related to each other. Uh, how, how do you how do you situate the Ottoman Empire in the history of imperialism? I'm just interested in general in that. Yeah, this is an excellent question, Kirk.
2: The Ottoman Empire was an empire. Even though in the Ottoman Turkish language, the Ottomans wouldn't really call themselves an empire because there is no clear equivalent of the term. But in the French language, in diplomatic language of the time, they did call themselves an empire and they did show many of the characteristics of an empire in terms of establishing and often asymmetrical uh, relationship between those subjugated by the sultan and his entourage. So, yeah, it was an empire. There was an unfolding Ottoman imperialism, which became even more clear as of the 19th century. So Ottoman Empire was a major uh, actor of global imperial relations in the 19th century. Towards the end of the century, you would even find the Ottomans being involved in what uh, my colleague Mustafa Minavi would call the scramble for Africa, so, yes, Ottoman Empire was one of the major powers, occasionally called a great power in the 19th century. And uh, yeah, it did have its imperialist aspirations. But at the same time, it was colonized or semi-colonized. I, I used the term financially colonized and economically colonized by Western European empires during the course of the 19th century. So it was bogged to victim, if you like to use the term, uh, of uh, colonization. But at the same time, yeah, it, uh, it did absorb and mimic many of the imperial and imperialistic practices of Western European, Northern American empires as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating in terms of the way it, it um, uh, has has both aspects, you know, and and, and, and I do think the victim victimhood uh, framework that's often used it, it denies agency um, to people. Uh, you know in uh, outside of europe you know uh, as if the uh, so uh, so that that's one aspect i'm i'm very interested in yeah. and, and and that point you you raise is very interesting in the turkish language uh the uh, they would not have referred to themselves as an empire uh which is, which is interesting uh i would be interested in, in the term they used and if 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 there was a different concept because you know i mean let's say in the indian subcontinent you would have things like um like w- what in english would be called the maratha empire but but of course these are english words um and and english concepts of of statecraft etc which which may not translate into other languages and i mean turkey turkey uh, well, the ottoman empire i should say um you know, was an empire, or at least from our definition of empire, the, uh, from this English-speaking side, um, for over 500 years, which is longer than any European empire, in fact. So I, I, I'd be interested in in the way uh, they refer to themselves. Uh, could you? Uh, I, I did, does it have to do with, let's say, the Caliphate and and the ummah and and this sort of thing? Can you uh, elaborate on that for us? Well, that
2: Caliphate and umayyad element was used uh, pragmatically, and especially that became the case in the late 19th century uh, under Sultan Abdülhamid II. The Ottomans did not use the term empire in the Turkish language. I think the closest to that modern Turkish language it would be Imperatorluk. But that wasn't really the word, the notion used back then at the time. They would call themselves the Devleti Ali, the high state uh, that was controlling. And this is where the Ottoman polity uh, and its um, administrative structure can be likened to an empire. It was a large political uh, unit. It did uh, establish dominant control over a variety of people. And by control, I mean in certain parts of the empire, this control was more direct, more immediate. But in in lands like Algiers in the West or Yemen in the South or Egypt, you would find that the link between the imperial center, Istanbul or Constantinople, however you like to put it, and the periphery of the empire was mainly limited to the payment of yearly tributes, and the dispatch of military units in times of war. So there was this limited uh, relationship between the imperial center and the rest, but it was still hierarchical. We, were, we are still talking of a large political unit with an expansionist drive or a memory of it. So in many senses, the Ottoman administrative structure was uh, showing the characteristics of an empire even though the term was hard today
0: right right yeah i mean because they they did take over the byzantine empire basically and and yeah, so, so yeah. it's very interesting very interesting so <clears throat> i mean obviously um being turkish I, I would imagine the the uh subject would interest you naturally but in in this particular uh subject of you know the levant and and the history there um and the particular subject of this book. How did you become interested in that?
2: Well, in my early work, I focused on the history of liberalism and the idea of liberty in the late Ottoman Empire and uh, modern Turkey. My studies have led me to the conclusion that the peculiar characteristics of liberal thought in this context, such as its communitarian nature, its endless float with nationalism, and Uh, despite the imperial history, the anti-imperialist undertones of liberal thought in the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. It owes much to the global imperial context and what I like to call the ontological insecurities these global imperial relations generated for the so-called Eastern or global Southern polities. And this context, the context of interventionism context of global hierarchies prompted in me the need to address the question of how imperial encounters and foreign interventions in the Ottoman world affected local political dynamics. When did they help improve local conditions and when did they have adversarial effects? And I came to realize more and more that modern liberty, modern modernity or secularization, whatever you... It was security that acted as the driving force of history, late Ottoman history, Middle Eastern history, and Euro-Middle Eastern entangled histories. While while I was pondering on these issues, my paths crossed with a brilliant scholar, Beatrice de at Utrecht University, who had recently obtained a European Research Council Consolidator Grant for her project on European security cultures in the 19th century. This was in uh, 2014. She invited me to write a book on the 1860 Syrian civil war and the European intervention in it. At first, I thought I could use the civil war as a window to investigate the pendulum between security and liberty in the wider Middle East in the age of empires. My plan was to write a book about the International Commission on Syria, which consisted of five European commissioners and an Ottoman representative. The book would be a micro-historical analysis of the circumstances on the ground, how these European commissioners dealt with it, and how they came up with a new administrative model in Syria in early 1860s and 1861, to be more precise. And then I was writing a background chapter to understand why why five European commissioners were dispatched to Syria to oversee the establishment of this security regime after, after the civil war. By what right? Were these European agents involved in this? And how did the history of this collective Western interventionism begin? So almost halfway through the project, I restructured my uh, book in a way to address these questions, which uh, organically turned uh, the book Dangerous Gifts into a study of nearly a century of Western armed interventionism in the 11th
0: right right yeah you know that's that's so fascinating on, on so many levels i mean, i, I uh, the relationship between liberalism uh globalization um uh the different types of of liberalism with communitarianism and nationalism uh, the, these things resonate with me very powerfully uh they're ideas i'm very interested in and and then and then um the uh the security versus liberty Dilemma. Well, certainly today, <laughs> that's a, a very yeah. live topic in, in so many other ways. But, and, and I really do think that this um, that, that this area, too, that you're talking about in this particular historical period is fascinating in terms of, of maybe the, the, well, I guess the switch in status of the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, and that very question you ask, you know, what gave the European powers um, the sense of, of right or superiority? Because I don't think they always felt superior. Um, I, I think that that, that was a, a change, and 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 I th- I think you do um uh, outline it in your book, you know. So that um, uh, so so that uh, I, I and, and I think this is in general too. I I I believe when you know the Europeans went into Africa, even when they went into um, uh, and I'm talking in the uh, 17th century, 16th century, and in in India. Uh, or the various empires, the Mughal Empire, or, or whatever. Um, the Europeans certainly did not see themselves as superior, and they weren't, in fact, um, at the time. Uh, that 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 came about later. That whole construction. And yeah. um, so your so this conference um, that that you're referring to, um, the security conference, and uh, how how does that really Would you say that was a pivotal point in this sort of? changing of, of, of perceptions and power roles and, and uh, you know, uh, of, of self-perception and perception of the other. W- would you agree with that?
2: As a historian, I'm not very friendly with pinpointing these pivotal moments and mm. uh, building narratives around them alone. We have these multi-layered processes and these are gradual processes. That lead to certain understandings, such as seeing the world through a bifocal lens, through a hierarchical lens, and seeing a you know, group of leading-edge empires, if, if I may use the 19th century vocabulary, as the civilized leading-edge empires, and the others as uncivilized or civilizing or, or uh, barbaric or semi-civilized. These, these terms were used uh, in, uh, interchangeably. Uh, But it was a gradual process. I would say the origins of this can be linked to enlightenment ideas when the term civilization came to be reformulated into uh, uh, a political vocabulary, even though since the beginning of history, all major political units tend to see the world as uh, civilized and and, and, and the rest with the enlightenment thought with the belief that once acquired, truth can be taught. And the civilized nations can use civilization both as a state of being, but also as a process of helping other progress. This is, this is a Western European belief initially. Uh, with that, the entangled histories of uh, Europe and other parts of the world be it Asia, in Asia or in the Americas, but particularly in Africa, in the Levant, Mesopotamia, and Asia Minor, it started to have a different face. And uh, one of the earliest moments of, of uh, if you really want a pivotal point, I think that one of the earliest moments of this hierarchical encounter would be the French occupation of Egypt in 1798, when the French um, set sail across the Mediterranean. In May 1798, they believed in the noble nature of their mission. They believed that, at least some of them believed that, and the the occupation was framed as a noble mission for the benefit of the locals, which, in a way, started to configure a new understanding of interventionism, a hierarchical one, certainly, but also one through an imperialist hubris.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting too. I mean, I, I myself, through, through study of, of different areas and aspects of history, have come across uh, the, the very same phenomenon. And uh, I, I've noticed, you know, the... Uh, and, and I now <laughs> am convinced of the very, very... Uh, um, it's inextricable relationship between liberalism and imperialism, in fact. Uh, would w- would you w- would you come to the same sort of conclusion from your own research? Yes, certainly. There are,
2: the, I think, the two developed in parallel with each other. Liberal imperialism was one of the driving forces of imperial expansionism in the nineteenth century, but it wasn't alone. Liberalism. What is what was mm-hmm. at stake there? Huh? It was there. There was more to that than liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Yes, so, so so certainly the flow of capital was also very important here, yeah. uh, in, in 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 expansionism. Like I, uh, I tell my students the story of this four G's. Gold is certainly important, but there is also these geostrategic considerations at play here, the during the you know wider global imperial competition. So that was the second G. There is a the third G, which is glory. You know, empires would want to sustain or preserve their civilized status, especially Russia after the Crimean War. It was of utmost importance for Russian imperial security understanding. And the 4G was got, they tried to spread the message of the gospel. Uh, liberalism was there, but liberalism, like security, is such a chameleon term, isn't it? It takes mm-hmm. different meanings in different contexts and can serve different ends. So I, I, I'm, I'm not really sure if we can really limit imperialism to a liberal worldview. I think there was much more at stake. There were several other uh, ideologies of progress, like nationalism, eventually social Darwinism. But uh, yeah, absolutely, the, the uh, flow of capital, the desire for global free trade, the desire for opening different economies, like in the Levant, in the Ottoman world. In China and in Africa, to global free trade, lowering uh, uh, import and export tariffs, customs duties—they all played a huge uh, role uh, in 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 globalization yes. and making the world more combined than ever, as Barry Boosen and George Lawson argue in their 2015 book, *Global Transformation*.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's that's fascinating. And now, well, let's just get to the the title of your book, "Dangerous Gifts." What mm. what are you referring to in in that title, and and why is it important? What what are these dangerous gifts?
2: Yeah, but I'm very glad you asked this question, Eric Kirk. By dangerous gifts, I'm referring back to and in fact, engaging with a hidden dialogue that transpired some eighteen years ago in the run-up to the United States-led coalition's invasion of Iraq in 2003. Back then, a number of scholars of the Middle East and international relations politics would turn to the recent past in an attempt to justify the invasion. Among them was Leitfouad Ajami of Stanford University, who was one of the most popular and influential proponents of the Iraqi war. He reportedly advised at the time neoconservative leaders, uh, such as Dick Cheney in Washington, D.C. And in his writings of the time, Ayte argued that Britain, as an empire, had its chance in the early 20th century to control Iraq and improve it, uh, modernize it. But it failed due to the exhaustion of its economy after World War I. Now it was the time for the Americans. The Iraqis, this this is just before the invasion, uh, Mm -hmm. Ajami argued that the Iraqis would welcome the Americans (laughs) with open arms because they were desperate to rid themselves of the rule of Saddam Hussein. So now it was the United States' imperial burden to secure them and also modernize the Arab world, above and beyond toppling the regime of Saddam Hussein. This is what Ajami would write just before the invasion. And then, three years into the war, Fuad Ajami published a book titled Foreigner's Gift. In this book, he claimed that since the war was an effort to decapitate the despotic regime in Iraq, it was a legitimate and noble imperial mission, a foreigner's gift to the Iraqi inhabitants, to cite him. He would say, only time would tell if it was a noble success or a noble failure. On the other side of this hidden dialogue, there were figures like uh, the prominent American-Palestinian literary scholar Edward Said, who would argue against the interpretations that considered empire and imperialism as benign. Only weeks before the invasion and months before he passed away, Edward Said wrote that every empire would tell itself and the world that it's unlike other empires. Its mission is not to plunder, but to educate and liberate, to quote him. Of course, I'm more inclined to think along the lines of Edward Said here, but Mm -hmm. not uncritically. The problem with both takes, of both Ajami and Said's takes, is their impressionistic nature. Neither Ajami nor Said were historians of foreign interventionism in the Middle East, nor were there any in-depth studies in their time, that li- looked into the making of collective imperial interventions and the reception of these interventions in the wider Middle East. There wasn't, back then, any coherent body of literature that looked into the imperialism security nexus. So I cannot blame Ademir or Said for their impressionistic imperish- takes, but I can say, and that's what I try to show in the book, that um, when we look into nearly two centuries-long modern Western armed interventionism in the Middle East, we find discourses very similar to those adopted by Ajami that framed interventions as a grace or favor or service or gift to the Levantine inhabitants. But when we peel away the manifold self-centered, strategic, economic, financial, and other motivations that prompted such interventions, we see that such discourses are nothing but a beguiling delusion. So historically speaking, the gifts Ajameez spoke of tended to be nothing but dangerous in the Middle East. So one had to write a history of how it all began and how each intervention forged into a pattern or a culture of security. That's why I needed to write dangerous gifts and call it dangerous gifts. Right.
0: That's that's um, very, very fascinating and very important, I think, you know, um, so, uh, well, can you just outline the basic argument uh, of, of the book? I know you, you have it um, divided into three parts and then chapters under each, each part. Avant le mot, um, the invention of the Eastern question, uh, the mountain. These are the titles you have for your parts. And so what, what is the argument you take your reader through?
2: I'd say the central argument of the book is that we need to take into account the um, long-standing vectors that enabled foreign interventions, and their often catastrophic results in the 19th century Middle East. In the book, I speak of the emergence of a trans-imperial security culture, or what we may call, in simpler terms, a culture of foreign interventionism in the region. This culture was woven around the Eastern question, which is widely accepted by historians to be the most dangerous, complex and international issue of the long 19th century, causing the death of more than a million people. At its simplest, the Eastern question was the question of how to deal with the alleged weakness of the Ottoman Empire, whose lands, as we spoke, stretched from the Crimea in the north to Yemen in the south, from Algeria and the Balkans in the west to Persia and Basra in the east. With the French invasion of Egypt in 1798, Western great powers considered it a duty to supply security in these territories, or they framed it so through periodical interventions, usually against the will of the Ottoman sovereign, but allegedly for the benefit of the locals. This resulted in a paradox, and this is at the heart of the book in the argument, an ever increasing demand for security in the region despite its purportedly increasing supply. I am discussing in the book how the Middle East came to be embroiled in a violent vortex and a cycle of civil wars, interventions, and a further violence. Or in other words, I document the making of the security paradox, how it emanated from a variety of factors, such as the gaze of the imperial legends on the Ottoman territories, or their haughty belief in their capacity to transform a local reality and local complexities that they had in fact hardly understood or in some cases chosen to ignore. I I try to draw attention to the pull factors also, the long omitted agency of the local Levantines in enabling foreign interventionism. So the book peels away these intersectoral dynamics of interventions, how economic and financial considerations informed interventionism, and it shows that we cannot understand the French invasion of Egypt in 1798 without taking into account the French merchants' debts to Egyptians, or we cannot understand why the Ottoman Empire opted out of the final act of the Congress of Vienna, say in uh, 1815, without the power's demands for opening up the Ottoman economy, opening up to a global free trade. So in short, I argue for considering Western interventionism from a more holistic lens, with historical depth, but also intersectoral breadth, to explain their counterproductive nature in the Levant or the wider Middle East, how it's created a security paradox.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
0: Well, yeah, that that's um, very very interesting, um, and yeah, the and 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 one thing I'd like to explore in that a little bit more is, I mean, yes, the, I the French invasion of Egypt, yeah, I think was, um, yeah, it 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 must be um, uh, a very important point in terms of you know going into the you know Ottoman territory because and tell me if you um if if you think i'm wrong in my understanding here uh, but uh, you know at the time i i don't think the ottomans were seen as you know inferior they, they you know they they were another power maybe they were opponents maybe they were enemies um and and maybe there was some sort of discourse i i, I tend to think i i wonder if if i'm trying to to look at a, a contemporary parallel Perhaps something like the way the West sees China um, as powerful, uh, but you know, but still othering them, <clears throat> kind of calling them barbarians and 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 enemies and and dangerous people, but uh, but not necessarily anymore, seeing them as as inferior in, in that sense, um, and and so that's one aspect in terms of that changing relationship of of the west to, to the ottomans and then the other thing is is i guess which is part of of the changing relationship is is changing i don't know uh if you understanding of history because you know what people now say all the time is that uh, oh yes well in the, in the middle east they've been fighting for centuries forever uh, you know it's just one long history of civil war but from my understanding of history I mean the Ottomans I suppose after the initial conquest period but you know for centuries the middle east was not a, a, a sore point in global uh, geoeconomics as it as it was after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire I mean in my view the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire you know was was central to the whole tumult and, and the centrality of these Middle Eastern um, problems from the Israel-Palestine problem to nationalism and, and so forth. But, um, yeah, so so you are historicizing uh, this the civil wars and not seeing it as, as the way it's said in, in this, oh, they've been fighting for thousands and thousands of years and they'll be continuing fighting for thousands and thousands of years in the future. So that historicization I'd like you to comment on and then, and yeah, and, and the changing relationship between the West and the Ottoman Empire. Can you uh, delve into that for us a little?
2: Yes, sure. Um, I must say, Kirk, I don't quite agree with you mm-hmm. when we say the um, so-called Western European empires were not seeing the Ottoman Empire as inferior to them in the 1790s. In fact, they were seeing the Ottoman Empire as inferior they were already developing projects like the Greek project, uh, where they would dismantle the Ottoman Empire and re-erect in her place a Byzantine Empire. There were very concrete plans of this, developed mm-hmm. by Katerina II, the Russian empress, joined by the Austrian King Joseph They were trying to pull the French into the picture. In fact, they would offer France, Egypt in the first place, but the French foreign minister at the time... Uh, would would not agree with the saying that it would create a domino effect and unsettle european peace unsettle mm-hmm. european balance i think as early as the first decades of the 18th century this understanding that the ottomans were no longer as strong as they used to be gradually uh, became strong gained traction in western european or, or let's say european international thought by 1770s when the ottoman empire had a catastrophic defeat at the hands of the russians and lost um, uh, the full control of crimea and signed a really devastating peace called the Kaynarca treaty it became more ev- evident for many european uh, scholars and politicians diplomats that the ottoman empire was weaker than major European empires. It could fall. It was now at the mercy of these European empires. So that equivalency, power balance between the Ottoman world and Western Europe in European eyes was, yeah, it was gone. The Ottomans also believed so. Huh? They were not the passive actors of this, what was called the Eastern question. In fact, that, that's one of the things I try to show in the book. They've been active agents since the beginning. They also believed that their empire was in decline. Although this is a very questionable term, they also believed that their empire uh, needed to be revived.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But it is a question of inferiority. No, it wasn't really quite the quite the case.
0: Yeah. To, to to answer because I mean, in World War One, the Ottomans were uh, were a participant in. in... You know the central yeah. powers and and so forth. You know, and they they weren't a a, a colonial possession. They were a, a participant.
2: No, yeah, yeah, true. They they joined the war. Yes, in, uh, in nineteen fourteen in, in November. Yeah, even though they could choose to opt out, but they chose to opt out from the Napoleonic wars as well uh, in seventeen nineties until the French occupation of Egypt, and then they effectively started the second. The war of the Second Coalition in uh, 1798 99. So, I would say the geostrategic and geoeconomic importance of uh, the regions that were collectively called the Middle East as of the 1900s, I think that goes back not to the 20th century, but to the late 18th century with mm-hmm. the independence of first Northern America and then Southern America, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the shifts of the focus of global colonial competition from the Americas to Asia. Mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire suddenly emerges, this gateway huh, between two worlds, Europe right. and Asia, between Europe and Africa. So it became immensely important from that point on. So I wouldn't really uh, see history starting in the early 20th century for the Middle East. In fact, all those ontological insecurities, history of interventionism, first proxy wars, and many of the practices what I in, in what I call this culture of foreign interventionism or transimperial security culture, including their you know uh, uh, vocabularies, huh? like gifts, like 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 uh, responsibilities to protect, all these go back to late 18th and early 19th century. And they are configured into a culture by the time uh uh, my, my book ends back in like in eighteen
0: sixties. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Yeah, and and the shift from, I mean, I I know um, uh, some uh, historians have called it from at least in, in the history of the British Empire, the British mm. Empire, uh, the first empire which is America's based to the second British Empire which was Asian based. Um, yeah, that that um, definitely makes makes a lot of sense uh, there. Um, what you were talking about in 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 the um, movement of focus and you know what else was, was fascinating to me that you mentioned because it's something that's not often recognized in um western scholarship uh, about uh first of all the russian empire uh, and and its importance uh, and uh and then as a subset of that um orthodox christianity and then how their relationship to the Byzantine empire as opposed to western uh you know the, the latin the, the western the protestant empires um and and that uh i i suppose that um i mean the whole history of the Hagia sophia and um re, reconquering constantinople and the um the, the new byzantine empire would uh be very important because uh and and there's this idea of of Moscow being the third rome uh for the uh you know the um uh, christian uh, the, the orthodox christian world after the the fall of constantinople that that would have played a uh, a big part in the russian consciousness uh at least um yes can you yeah c- can you uh, uh elaborate on that for us please
2: yes that's true but at the same time we should not forget that these are historical processes. So it wasn't a constant, the Greek project of Russia. Mm. They upheld it in the 1870s. But by 18, sorry, 1792 93, uh, the project was abandoned, especially after the death of Katerina II. Mm. But then in the 1800s, in 1807, in Telsit, uh, Tsar Alexander and Napoleon Bonaparte would discuss how to dismantle the Ottoman Empire again. But then in the 1830s, Russia would emerge as the protector of the Ottoman Empire. So the relationship was very dynamic. Mm. You you would say, I I try to summarize it in the conclusion of the book, but in in about every decade of the late 18th and 19th centuries, Russian position with respect to Ottoman Empire would see a change. So they would uphold two different projects, greek project and ottoman project on the one hand like protecting or dismantling the ottoman empire and then they would develop this idea of weak neighbor okay we really don't need to dismantle the ottoman empire as long as we establish a dominant influence over it we keep it weak it will never be a threat to russia and we can still have access to the mediterranean uh, through our dominant influence which they obtained in 1830s during a civil war in the ottoman world they supported the Ottoman imperial center against the dissenting, uh, from an Ottoman point of view, Egyptian Pasha. But then all of a sudden, the regime in Istanbul fell under Russian dominant influence, which almost created a, a European white war because the British and French realized that the power balance would in, in Europe would be upset if Russia could control the Black Sea and the Agency, which would give it a, a strategic advantage. So the story is in fact a lot more complicated than that, but the orthodoxy element was always there. Russian imperial agents did use uh, the, the existence of a significant um, Greek Orthodox and Orthodox population in Ottoman territories as a channel of interventionism in, in many episodes. Uh, in, in the late 18th and 19th
0: centuries. Wow, that's fascinating. I maybe we could briefly uh, discuss your relationship uh, to the critique of Orientalism by Edward Said and and the debates and scholarship surrounding you know the, this hor- historiography and uh, where you place yourself uh, within that because I, I know you've made reference to it within your book.
2: Yeah, but the narrative of the book does build upon this critique of Orientalism by by Edward Said. One of the main contributions of Dangerous Gifts to the scholarship, uh, I like to think, is that uh, it foregrounds the agency of local actors, the Levantine, Ottoman actors. It tells the story of the Eastern question and the culture of interventionism, not only through the lens of major Western empires and through their archives alone, but also from the angle of local actors, be it Ottoman imperial agents or a Lebanese family. So this contrapuntal approach, uh, as Edward Said calls it, uh, drawing borrowing it from musicology, counterpoint. He had suggested this uh, in his 1993, if I'm not mistaken. Culture and no,
0: imperialism.
2: Culture and imperialism, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it helps dangerous gifts critically approach the literature on the Eastern question that has habitually focused on the great powers, on the West, and that has habitually considered the Eastern question primarily as a Western question. Yet, in his earlier work in Orientalism, Said tells us that Orientalism is a style of thought lies on an imaginative bifurcation of the world between the West and the East that has long enabled Western domination. To many critics, this postulation is an inherently Orientalist quality itself because it perpetuates the irreconcilable division between West and East. Mm -hmm. Dangerous Gifts strives to go beyond these distinctions and attempts to show the entangled nature of inter-imperial and communal relations. Hence, I use the term trans-imperial. It argues against cultural or other iron curtains between West and East. And by the same token, the book looks to go beyond the political and polemical nature of uh, the critique of Orientalism by means of multi-archival research and with this I mean archival sources not only in Europe or America or Russia I do make use of all these archival sources but I also try to bring into picture or bring into discussion Turkish Ottoman Egyptian archival sources so the book looks to bring a more substantiated analysis of the Eastern question and for an intervention Interventions. It looks to push, or it looks to um, uh, draw attention to both push and pull factors of interventionism, at the same time remaining loyal to what historical data tells us, rather than trying to fit historical data into an argument or theory.
0: Yeah, that that's very important. I, I mean, I remember when Cultural Culture and Imperialism came out, and um, and, and I thought you know why they provided a, a nice framework. I was um, I was disappointed that that it did, didn't have um, much of the sort of agency of of the um, you know of the other in a sense what what he was trying to bring in uh, there and and it sounds like you know that's an important important uh, contribution of this book in particular so what what would you say are some of the most common under misunderstandings about Lebanon and the Levant, and particularly in the period that you address, what what are the most common misunderstandings?
2: From a historical point of view, the inhabitants of the Levant have usually been associated with barbarism, as peoples prone to violence, incapable of self-governance, or worse, as people with undeserving lives. These postulations run through history in the writings of several European and some Ottoman imperial agents. But because of the immensely complex dynamics that resulted in violence, that prompted prompted violence, the historical contingencies of the decisions made by these Levantine actors were usually paid less attention by the same agents, European or Ottoman. For example, one cannot explain why the Greeks, Ottoman Greeks, rose and killed thousands of Muslims in the Muria in the 1820s, in the early years of the independence war, or why the Damascene Muslims fell upon the Christian quarter of the town in 1860, murdering again thousands. One cannot explain these tragic histories without looking into the long-standing political, economic, emotional sufferings of these populations, not without fully understanding what was at stake for them. So this is why it's of crucial importance to offer what I call an intersectoral analysis, how financial, economic, cultural, and religious actors, factors sorry, informed political and diplomatic decision-making processes and, and uh, vice versa. Such an If we approach the his, history from such an angle, it would allow us to see, for instance, that um, sectarianism emerged in the 19th century Lebanon, not after the 1840 intervention of the great powers or with the beginning of the Tanzimat era a year earlier uh, after the proclamation of the Gülhane Edict. This is a popular, widely accepted argument in literature but an intersectoral historical excavation shows us earlier examples of sectarian violence, that is, the mobilization of people against each other through religious discourses and sentiments before 1839-1840, as I detail in the book. The major problem in approaching the Levant in the 19th century was that how to believe in one's so-called civilized status and how it gave license to the intervening powers to transform an extremely complex social reality on the ground, which they hardly understood. Like this, this lies, I think, at the heart of the misunderstandings as well. Maybe this is more a misperception of the self, or Western self, or the global uh, North self, or great powers, have, or imperial self, than the Levantines but it did radically affect the history of the world.
0: Right. Well, I mean, this is, uh, so obviously this is uh, not, uh, I, I suppose, as, as so much of history, it's not only about the period of time you're writing about. It's, it's obviously relevant for today as well. I mean, you did speak about the Iraq war and how it even motivated you uh, in terms of uh, writing the book itself. But uh, but in terms of its its relevance for today in 2021. Um, Can you share your thoughts on that?
2: Yes, of course. Um, I think the same overconfident approach in resolving the problems of what we may call the wider Middle East has persisted to this date. I argue in the book that we share with the 19th century historical actors a common counterproductive culture of security or culture of interventionism which was configured under the inspiration of enlightenment thought, with the crafting of the notion of great power as a quasi-legal category in international law and of course through the orientalist bifurcation of the world as the civilized and the others the west and the orient all these discourses and the security paradox or the vicious cycle of interventionism and violence Still continue today. So the problem is not so much with the notion of interventionism alone. For example, the events in Rwanda, Bosnia, or now in Syria tell us how not to intervene, not inter- non-intervention can inflict an even greater intolerable amount of suffering and uh, loss of life. But the problem here is, for nearly two centuries. The interest of foreign powers, initially Western European and then Global North, and now regional contenders for dominance in the Middle East such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iran and Turkey. The interests of these foreign powers have been prioritized during interventions and have filled cycles of violence and civil wars. The current culture of foreign interventionism has long neglected the needs and political agency of the populations in question, the target populations. They have allowed oppressive military regimes to cling to power, as we see, for example, in Egypt and Syria. Lebanon is also a case in point. I think the message we can drive from all this is that uh, understanding the situation today, say in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and to a lesser degree in Lebanon, Iran, and even Turkey, entails looking not only into their immediate uh, discursive environments, but that longer history of interventionism, how it has affected domestic political cultures, shrunk liberal and other progressive ideologies into their shells. There is urgent need to change this culture of interventionism because the gifts allegedly uh, given... Uh, or to to local populations through interventions have been detrimental,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. and I mean i I know um you know it, it is not really a, a book I mean, it is not a book about today, but but I'd like to hear your at least brief um, uh, opinion about what's going on in afghanistan I, I I find it very, very notable the strong liberal objection to the withdrawal from afghanistan not the not the typical warhawk conservative uh um stance but but the, the liberal ringing of hands at, at the withdrawal and and the the anger from the liberal side uh about um withdrawing and then allowing the the taliban to take over etc what so i'm sure you know the, this book obviously I would make one think about that in today's context. Um,
2: yeah, but it's very quickly,
0: Yeah, I would will, I will like to draw your attention to intersectorality. Mm-hmm. So the,
2: the intervention in Afghanistan and occupation in the last 20 years, of course, there was a political and arguably a humanitarian dimension to it, what the Taliban did to the Afghanis ending that was important, even though the Taliban did continue to exist in the countryside, the intervention and occupation limited to the the center, uh, the main cities, urban areas of Afghanistan. But we should also never forget this intersectoral dimension, meaning Mm -hmm. how development aid and war complex became a lucrative business for Mm -hmm. the intervening powers and certain sectors. So we we should never lose sight of this fact, And we should always remember why interventionism tends to be counterproductive by looking at true, not only historical depth, but also, as I said, intersectoral breadth for this reason. Mm -hmm. Why they failed and what Afghanis actually think now uh, needs to be considered in relation to this uh, more complex matrix. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Very interesting. So in terms of the, the message you would like to leave your readers with I, we, we've, we've touched on it definitely th- throughout our conversation but would you like to let's say summarize it and bring it together as we uh, move towards our closing
2: well in fact I've already
0: an- answered to this in, yeah. the, uh, in, in the previous um,
2: mm-hmm. questions so I don't know if I should repeat myself but uh, shortly yeah. it's now time to change this yeah. culture of interventionism in the wider Middle East and a way to do it is to look at its historical origins. And well, I would advise uh, readers to take a look at "Dangerous Gifts." Uh, it's also open access through Oxford University Press's website because it was funded by European Research Council. So the readers don't have to buy the book; they can easily download the
0: PDF version uh, to their computers or whatever you and no, read it for free. That's excellent, and and definitely. We will have the link for that um, on the the site and recommend that very, very highly. That's that's, that's excellent. Uh, And I guess before we close, uh, are you working on any other projects right now that you'd like our audience to know about?
2: Uh, Yes, sure. I'm currently finalizing my third monograph, uh, a much shorter study that is a prequel to Dangerous Gifts. It looks into the two Istanbul embassies of the Scottish diplomat, Sir Robert Liston, and discusses the intimate connections between the capitulations, that is the legal and economic privileges uh, accorded to the European uh, historical actors, the relationship between capitulations and peacemaking at the turn of the 19th century. I use the diaries of uh, Robert Liston's wife, Henrietta Liston, as well as Ottoman and Russian materials in this new book, it's really fun to write it, and hopefully it will be fun for the readers uh, uh, to, to, to read. And uh, in addition to this, together with Jonathan Conlin uh, of Southampton University, I'm co-leading the Lausanne Project, which uh, will result in the publication of an edited volume on the Lausanne Peace Treaty of 1923, which was the last of the peace treaties signed at the end of World War I. It was with this treaty that the maps of the Middle East, as we know it today, was largely redrawn, uh, so that book will come out hopefully in 2023
0: by uh, the Ginkgo uh, Library. With the Ginkgo Library. Okay, well that that uh, I look forward to that, and 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 uh, good luck, and hopefully we can have you on again when those books come out. Yeah, thank you, kirk Thank you. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been very informative and stimulating. Once again, the book is Dangerous Gifts, Imperialism, Security, and Civil Wars in the Levant, 1798 to 1864, published by Oxford University Press, but available also on open access. And we've been speaking to the author, Ozan Ozafshi, um, and uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Kirk. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.